Amos chapter 1 and 2 tonight. We should get through it. Um, we've done an introductory completely on, on Amos, as we do with all the uh, books that we study. I would encourage you to get if you didn't. But um, the opening two chapters of the book of Amos contain um, eight judgments to the Gentile nations. Two of them are Jude and Israel, as we said this morning. The reason being as they are living like the pagans, so therefore God judges them like that. Um, the judgments are, are not that extensive uh, on all um, uh, five of them, well, six really, um, two to four verses, but uh, again, the climax, as we said this morning, is Israel, when he gets to Israel, the northern kingdom, having from verse 6 on to 16 in chapter 2. Um, we're going to see the relationship between some of these um, um, tribes also, or nations uh, that he calls out. Uh, you have um, Edom, you have Moab, you have Ammon. They're related to the Israelis through um, Esau and through the daughters of Lot. And so you have some carryover there that um, God um, uh, will frown upon. But Amos is not um, unique alone in proclaiming the judgment against the nations of the world. Um, you have um, Isaiah in chapter uh, 13 to 23, uh, that he judges uh, Babylon, um, the Philistines, uh, Moab, Damascus, Egypt, um, the desert of the seas. You have uh, Edom again, you have Arabia, you have the Valley of Vision, and you have Tyre also. You also have Jeremiah in chapter 45 to 51, that he pronounced the judgment against Egypt, Philistia, again, the Philistines, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Damascus, Kedar, Razor, Alam, which is Persia, Babylon. Then you have Ezekiel in chapter 25 down to 32. He also calls out judgment on Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistia, many of those that we'll see right here also. And this is uh, uh, Tyre also is mentioned there, uh, Ezekiel 26 through 28. Egypt again, the judgment of Edom again, the judgment of Gog in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Gog, the northern enemies of Israel, uh, Meshach and Tubal, and that's the um, battle before um, uh, the seven-year tribulation, or what really is the igniting factor for the tribulation to begin, and that's when Russia will attack Israel. Um, the book, again, the division, chapter 1 and 2, you have the judgment of the nations, eight burdens. Uh, chapter 3 through 6, you have the judgment of Israel's three sermons, and then you have 7 through 9, the judgment leads to restoration, and you have five visions there as we've gone through the introduction. But let's begin here in chapter 1, verse um, 1 and 2. We have the introduction. He says, The word of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jer um, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and Pastors of shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Here in the introduction, uh, the words of Amos, they are his words, but as a prophet, they are inspired by God. Even in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20 through 20 tells us that the men of old did not speak of their own impulse or origin, but as they were carried along by the Spirit of God. So when men were not called by God, not anointed by God to be prophets or kings or priests who sometimes prophesied, they spoke as regular men. But when God directed and guided them, he was making his revelation known so that what we possess is God's inerrant, infallible word. That's what makes the difference. And when God anointing wasn't upon them, they spoke like anybody else. They were fallible like anybody else, certainly Peter. Uh, one minute he's saying that Christ is the son of the living God, and that's thing he's saying uh, that he's not going to fulfill prophecy, and Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. Um, so uh, there's a very clear difference. Now, he was a sheep breeder, a herdsman, uh, and later on in chapter 7, 14, we also know that he's a um, fruit picker, a uh, sycamore. And um, Tekoa is about six miles north of Bethlehem, towards the Dead Sea. Um, the uh, wise woman of Tekoa that uh, Joab got to go confront David was there, the very same region where David kept some of his sheep and ran from Saul. And the date notice is prophesied here by two kings, and many times the prophets do this. 
to kind of establish. Now, sometimes we have some prophecies that we don't know, so we have to look internally to see if we have some clues. But here, he gives us the reign of King Uzziah of Judah, 790 to 740 B.C. And Jeroboam II, remember, he has been blessed by God financially, but he's under judgment, okay? I mean, 50 years just being uh, just wealthy, gaining territories, boundaries, everything else. And he reigned 793, 92 to 753 B.C. And... Um, uh, so these two kings gives us a date where we can place um, Amos here. And as we probably prophesied, if you want to put a date on there, just a certain one, 760 around there. He also does it by the earthquake here two years before the earthquake. This earthquake was significant enough that even Zechariah 14.5 um, records it for us. Now, Josephus, the, um, the traitor Jew who was a historian for the Roman Empire... Um, some of his writings are, can be confirmed, they confirm the scripture, but sometimes you don't know because he embellished at times, and he uh, correlated this with Uzziah's leprosy, so he, but the date is questionable, he puts it around the Second Chronicles 26, but the uh, dates conflict. So again, anything you might read in a commentary or a historian, you have to judge their homework by the scriptures, not the reverse, very important. Now, um, verse 2, the description of God's judgment. The Lord roars on Zion. We've seen this before on Joel chapter 3, verse 1 and other passages. That means God is coming in judgment. Uh, Jesus, the line of the tribe of Judah, has prevailed. Um, Zion identifies a whole region and area around the Jerusalem, the Temple Mount, Ophel, the city of David, and it moves up towards the temple where Solomon built. You have Mount Moriah completely where uh, Abraham offered Isaac, and if you follow the topography all the way there, there's the Damascus um, gate, and there's a the road there, and there's you have Golgotha, which is the very top of Moriah, where Jesus Christ was crucified. Uh, God Himself will provide a sacrifice two thousand years later. Isaac was uh, a type of Jesus Christ, and so uh, a very specific time. This is the city that God has chosen. It is His location. It is His city. It's where the temple was. And uh, it is where he will return to. That's why I believe Jerusalem is the safest place in the world. <laughs> it is his property. And he's given it to the Jews. Now, the judgment is described figuratively here. Um, the pastures of the shepherds are said to mourn. Uh, lamentation because of the judgment. Again, the top of the Mount Carmel is withered. And Mount Carmel is beautiful up there high towards the, uh, by Haifa. Haifa is the Mediterranean. Carmel um, is uh, just that far from there. It's a beautiful place. And in verse 3 now, this section goes all the way to chapter 2, verse 3, the judgment of the nations uh, before he gets to uh, Judah and Israel. And in verse 3, down to five, we have the judgment of Syria. He says, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with implements of iron. But I will send a fire into the house of Haziel, which shall devour the places of Ben-Hadad. I will also break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon, and the one who holds the scepter from Beth Eden, the people of Syria shall go captive to Kir, says the Lord. And so the divine oath here behind the judgment of Syria. Syria, as you know, is to the north of Israel, the constant enemies. Today, they're still the constant enemies of Israel. Okay? From Syria, they go into Iraq. And then Afghanistan, you have that whole area of of Mesopotamia. Uh, the authority behind the judgment pronounced is repeated eight times to the nations. Thus saith the Lord. Can't be more authoritative than that. It is he who speaks. The prophetic formula, three transgressions for four is repeated also. It's a formula not to say after two or three, that's it. It's saying that he has spoken many, many times and you've crossed that line. Now judgment is coming. And the formula is straight across as we'll see over and over again. Um, they had overstepped those bounds, God's long-suffering, God's patience. Uh, we are saved by grace through faith, not of ourselves. And there's no sin that God cannot forgive or will not forgive. 
but a constant rebellion against God, God only knows where that line is. I certainly don't know it. Often people ask, I think, I think I've blasphemed Jesus Christ. I've committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I say, you haven't. How can you be so sure? Because you're asking me about it. If you've committed blasphemy, you will not be concerned. It won't bother you. You won't be in a church. You won't be asking a preacher. You will be gone. It's real simple. Now, Damascus was the capital of Syria. It's believed to be the oldest city. And um, that's where Paul was going to uh, arrest some Christians in, on the Damascus Road. The Lord um, um, stopped him, so to speak, and, 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 and redeemed him. Um, in the early, the late 70s, we took a tour to Israel, and we went on the Jordan side, and we went up to Damascus, up to Syria. Um, and it was quite an, an event. There's a lot of neat archaeological digs on that side. Uh, we went down the, tree, the street called Straight and everything. Um, but I wouldn't want to be over there right now. Uh, it's not the most friendliest place. Um, the verdict, I will turn away the punishment, is repeated eight times again. In other words, um, um, he will not turn it away. They've crossed that line. The reason is given here um, for Syria. They thresh Gilead with implements of iron. The threshing is not literal. In other words, uh, the uh, threshing is on the ground, with whether iron tools or with stones on top. So they thresh the, the ground and that and the wheat. And it's not literal, but it's speaking about the... Uh, the havoc and the destruction that uh, came at the hand of Hazael. Um, he destroyed the on the side of, of Jordan uh, to the north. You have the two and a half tribes that settled there. You had Gad, Reuben, and half tribe of Manasseh. Remember, they, they would raise cattle. And they figured, hey, we don't want to go on. And remember, Moses, no, don't do that. Don't you know what happened in the wilderness? We were 40 years. No, 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 we're not rebelling. We'll go in the land, settle the land with you. And when we're done... We'll come back, and we just want here. But they settled outside the boundaries that God really gave to them. They were the first to go into captivity to Assyria, 722. And there are always people that want to see how far they can be in the yard before they're out of the yard. And it's always dangerous. Enjoy the whole yard. Be safe. The reasons given again, the threshing, the threshing again, um, that cruelty and all that happened to them. Now, in fact, in in um, in Second Kings ten thirty two and thirty three, it says, "In those days, the Lord began to cut off part of Israel, and Hazael conquered them in all the territories of Israel, from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, Gad, Reuben, and Manasseh, half of the tribe, from Orar, which is by the river Arnon, halfway by the Dead Sea, there, including Gilead and Basham. It goes forward up to the north." Okay, from that part and the on the on the Jordan side, and so um, the description here, verse four and five of God's judgment: God would send fire, the house of Hazel, devour the palace of Ben Hadad. A repeated phrase that we're going to see: the judgment of fire, um, indicating the consuming destruction. Fire is an interesting thing, you know. It depends what kind of material you put in there. If you put wood, hay, and stubble, it consumes. If you put silver, gold. Um, now, a precious stone, it just purifies it. It can't hurt it. So it depends on the material. But God's judgment is here upon the evil. Elijah was sent to anoint Hazel, if you remember, when he was depressed and um, running from Jezebel in 1 Kings 19.15. And Hazel was sent to Elijah by Ben-Hadad to see if he was going to recover from his illness. And as Elijah was speaking to him, he kept looking at him. And he started weeping because, and he says, why does my master weep? He says, because I know that you, your master's going to recover, but he's still going to die. And then he said, but I know that you're going to kill young men, children, and rip open pregnant women. And he says, am I a dog, a gross dog to do that? And then he went back home and told Ben Haddad, you're going to recover. And the next day, he took a pillow and smothered him to death. And then he fulfilled the rest in 1 Kings 8, 10 through 15. God is very aware of everything. God judges nations in their attitude towards Israel, and their attitude towards the world, everything else. God would have the gates of Damascus in verse 5 breached and the people transpopulated to Kerr. 
This was the custom of the Assyrians. They would take people from a certain place and, and transfer them to another place. This was fulfilled by Tilgath-Pileser III in Assyria in 855 B.C. Just as God said, thus saith the Lord, 2 Kings 16.9, it does it. So the Assyrians would cross-populate people, take people from one city like Pasadena and take them and put them in Hasi in the Heights and take the people from Hasi in the Heights and put them up in Malibu to separate them from their loved ones in their homeland. And then they were in a mingle, lose their culture, lose their family, lose their identity, and they're gone. And they're least likely to rebel if they're so far away and depressed. Simple. Okay? Uh, very, very useful tactics in war times. Now, Beth Avon means the house of wickedness. Beth Eden means the house of pleasure. Okay? Um, Bethel means the house of God. And so, again, um, the opposite of God, the opposition of what God desired. All these heathen nations. Verse 6 through 8, you have the judgment of Philistia. He says, And thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Gaza, and for four I will not turn away its punishment, because they took captive the whole captivity to deliver them to Eden. But I will send a fire upon the walls of Gaza, which shall devour uh, its palaces. I will cut off the inhabitants of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter from Eshkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron, and the remnant of Philistia shall perish, says the Lord. And so here again, God speaking against the Philistines. Um, the same Moses stated, thus saith the Lord, absolute authority. The same prophetic formula for three transgressions for four. Gaza, the Philistines were perennial enemies of Israel. On the coast there of the southwestern uh, shore of Israel, Gaza is still a problem for Israel. Much of the attacks and the rocket launches come from Gaza. Um, the Philistines, their power was broken by David, if you remember 1 Samuel chapter 6, 16-17. The same verdict is declared, I will not turn away its punishment. So these are the cities of the Philistines that are mentioned. There were five, if you remember, where they took the ark and God gave them hemorrhoids and they weren't very comfortable, and then they sent the ark away, and nobody wanted it, and um, God's judgment upon them. And the reason, it says, because they took captive the whole captivity to deliver them up to Eden, or Edom here. They sold the entire captivity as slaves to Edom, believed during the reign of Jehoram in Second Chronicles twenty-one sixteen. So in other words, um, they, they just were, um, they hated Israel. Uh, you remember that this is where the uh, whole invented history of the Palestinian nation comes. In 132 or 135, 32 to 35, Rome got tired of the rebellion of the Jews, put a final stop to them, salted the land, murdered many, sold others, imprisoned and sold them to slavery, and they renamed the land of Israel to Palestinia to insult them, naming it after their enemies, the Philistines. There has never been a Palestinian nation, never has been a Palestinian people, never has been found a Palestinian flag before the PLO named it. Because <laughs> it's make-believe. Before 1948, there was no borders in that whole region. Do your history. It's an invented history for the hate against Israel by the Palestinians and by the Muslims and many of the Arab nations. But it has no historical veracity nor scriptural affirmation. And so... Here again, um, you remember that Joel 3.3.7 says that they also sold them to the Greeks later on. And they imported them overseas for slavery. Now, verse 7 and 8, you have the uh, descriptive judgment here. 
The judgment of fire is repeated again, but I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza to devour the palaces. God would cut off the Philistines in their cities. The inhabitants from Ashdod, the one that holds the scepter from Ashkelon, the other city. My hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, says the Lord God. So Hezekiah subdued them in 2 Kings 18.8. Alexander Janius finally destroyed them in 93 B.C. Have you ever heard of a Philistine? <laughs> There's no Philistines alive today. It's all past history. You ever hear of a Hittite? No Hittites. Any Jebusites here in the, in the auditorium? Any Scythians? None. All these nations that God declared judgment upon came to be exactly as he said. Extinct. Now verse 9, down to 10, you have the judgment of Tyre. It says, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre, and for four I will not turn away its punishment, because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom, and did not remember the covenant of his brotherhood. But I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre, which shall devour its palaces. Two verses, short. The divine oath and reason is given here again. The same oath stated, the same prophetic formula. The Phoenicians were mariners north of Israel, southwest of Damascus, the capital of the nation. It's mentioned many times in Scripture. The same verdict is declared, I will turn away, I will not turn away its punishment. Once God has declared that prophetic judgment, it will come to pass. Whether people believe it, doesn't make any difference. Whether people acknowledge it, doesn't make any difference. Nebuchadnezzar besieged the city, as you know. They moved out to the island less than a mile out there. And um, they spoiled his conquest in Ezekiel 26. Then Alexander the Greatest um, scraped the ruins of the city of Tyre and began to build a causeway to get out to the island, and he destroyed Tyre. The prophecy is an incredible prophecy in Ezekiel. We went over it when we studied Ezekiel. The chance probability of something happening are so infinite that you can't even put enough zeros after a one. The reason they get is because they took captive the whole captive, the whole captivity to deliver them over to Edom. So once again, just the hate against um, Israel, you know, just um, selling people off and, and attacking them and everything else. They did not remember the covenant of brotherhood, it says. The Phoenicians broke covenant with David. He made a covenant with Hiram, helped them build a temple through Solomon. But David was a friend of Hiram. They worked together. The marriage of Ahaz and Jezebel strengthened the covenant, but for evil. In 1 Kings 16.31, Ahaz was bad enough, but Ahab was bad enough alone, but you have Jezebel with him. They were insane together. Evil. Verse 10, it says here, by the description of God's judgment, the judgment of fire again, uh, destroying the walls of Tyre. They would be conquered. The fulfillment again was twofold. Tyre was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. And the second fulfillment was the scraping it like the top of a plate. Dumping everything into the water. Building a causeway out there. For a long time they just thought it was just a peninsula. It's a causeway. And... Um, it's amazing, just the prophecies God gave years before Alexander the Great. 250 years after Nebuchadnezzar, he fulfills it. Now in verse 11 and 12, we have the judgment of Edom. And thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, 
and for four, I will not turn away this punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity. His anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. But I will send the fire upon Teman, which shall devour the places of Bozrah. The judgment of Eden, again, you have, if you're looking to my right, it would be your right. On the top you have Ammon, then you have Moab, then you have Edom at the bottom. They go from the north part where the Sea of Galilee, the same parallel, all the way down to below the Sea of Galilee, down by the, uh, um, the Midia, where uh, Mount Zion really is at. Okay? Mount Zion is not in the Zion Peninsula. It's over here in Midia, in Arabia. Galatians tells us that, okay? All your Bibles are wrong. Go home, turn to your maps where it says Sinai, Mount Sinai, put a circle and a slash. They're wrong. Turn to Galatians, you have your answer. It's in Media over in Arabia. And if you ever get a chance, get the little video, Mountain on Fire, it will give you a whole documentary on people going over them. They show you the fence, they show you the sacrifice, they show you everything that's going on there. It's an amazing finding. But the majority of Christianity just pushes it away, doesn't even acknowledge it. It's amazing. When we did the Exodus, we went through the whole thing. Um, but here, the uh, divine oath and reason are given again. Um, God always explains and reveals why he does what he does. God doesn't just judge people without warning them, without telling them why, or without giving them sufficient time. So we can pull those kind of shenanigans on each other and say, well, you didn't tell me this and I didn't know that and if I would have known that and, you know, all that kind of stuff that we do. But when God acts, there, there is no fault that's found in God. There is no charges we can give to Him. We cannot say, God, you didn't warn me enough. God, I didn't know that. God, you know, you just were, you favored others before me. No, no, no. And when God lowers the boom and He brings judgment, it is well, well-deserved. The reason for judgment was because they pursued their brother with the sword and cast off all pity because their anger tore perpetually. They hated Israel. Jacob and Esau fighting in the womb. Two nations in your womb. The one to reign by the hand of God would be Jacob. Heel catcher as he hung on to his brother's heel. Edom always was the enemy of Israel. He would help the enemy against them. They didn't allow them to pass through the land in Numbers 20, 14 through 21. Just hard nose, just hardened. Esau was Jacob's brother, the type of the flesh. Sold his birthright for a bowl of pottage. He wasn't concerned about the blessings of God. He just... Wanted an inheritance here, now. Their treacherous crime was as Jerusalem was being sacked by Nebuchadnezzar as they hindered the escape of the Jews, handing them over to the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Obadiah speaks very clearly about that in verse 10 through 14. There's only one chapter, Obadiah. And he mentions they're, they're dividing the land. God does not like anybody dividing the land of Israel. What's the topic of the last four administrations, five administrations of the United States presidents? Divide the land. It is bad idea. It is not a good idea. The Bible is very, very clear. And so this hate that was just from the heart um, and it just perpetuated. Verse 12, the description of God's judgment, but I will send a fire on Timon, which shall devour the palaces of Bozrah. Timon was one of the largest city of Edom. The wise men of Timon are spoken about. One of Joel's friends came from Timon. Bozrah, the strong fortress city of Edom, the capital. God could care less how many people you have in your city, 
how many military fortresses are there. It doesn't intimidate him. There is no problem with God getting another nation to come and judge the nation that has sinned against him. There is no problem, regardless of how much nuclear capability they have. God's on the throne. God can take care of these things. As we look to the book of Revelation, it seems to be that there will be some type of exchange in the tribulation and great tribulation. Because after that war of Gog and Magog, there's markings that are placed and nobody can go near those bodies for a certain amount of time. And then they come by and they bury them. So there is some nuclear exchange at some level. The neutron bomb seems to be described, as Zachariah says, that the, their eyes melt in their sockets. So we don't know. But here again, Edom became tributary to Tilgath Pileser III in 732 BC and overrun by the Nabataeans later. So God's word comes to pass. God has all the time in the world. He has all the resources in the world. Nothing can stop him. Nothing can hinder him. And um, such has been the case from the beginning of time. I mean, God judged an entire world except for eight people. God delivered without any exaggeration an easy three and a half million people from Egypt. Do you realize only two entered the promised land over the age of 20? Caleb and Joshua. They could have gotten there in 11 days. It took them 40 years because of rebellion. They limited the Lord. And after they went to the land, you know the whole story. God says, don't let any of them live. They let them live. They made covenants with the Gibeonites. They came with that moldy bread and the tattered clothes and the worn shoes. We're from far away. Make a covenant with us. They did not take counsel of the Lord. But they believed what they saw. That was their problem. You always want to ask the Lord. When the Lord tells you something, you already know the answer. You don't even have to seek him. Do you realize that the majority of our decisions we don't even have to pray about? As Christians? They're already made. If you know the word of God, you don't even have to pray about it. We pray for direction, for guidance. When there's some decisions and choices, we don't know which way we should go. They're both viable. They're both honoring to the Lord. What do you want, Lord? But everything's laid out for us. It's a matter of obedience. And that's the reality of it. So, um, Bozrah. The other cities got fulfillment. In verse 13 down to 15, we have the judgment of Ammon. He says, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of the people of Ammon, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they ripped open the women with child in Gibeah, that they might enlarge their territory. But I will kindle a fire in the wall of Riba, or Rabbah. And it shall devour its palaces amid shouting in the day of battle. In a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, the king shall go into captivity. And he and his princes together, saith the Lord. Once again, the divine oath and reason is given. The same oath, the same prophetic formula, the same verdict. Here for Ammon. The reason for their judgment was because they ripped open women with children in Gilead. It's a horrible, horrible thought that someone could do something like that. Now, this is in a state of war. And men do horrible things in 
states of war, things that they would not do otherwise because they're attempting to survive. And sometimes people lose their mind to an extent and do things that are more out of anger, sometimes even losing your sense of all complete right or wrong. But when you think about this charge of this sin, and you think that this goes on daily in Planned Parenthood facilities, as they invite young women to come in and to lay on a couch there, and then a doctor proceeds to kill the baby in her womb. And it's considered good, right, be it by drowning the baby, be it by tearing it apart, be it by partial abortion where the baby's born alive and they turn him and cut the back of his head and suck out his brains, or to allow him to live completely and let him die on the counter so that way they can harvest parts and organs. Who's more barbaric? A person at a war who does things like that or someone in the civilization who has a doctor's degree and calls it good and says it's not a human being? Who do you think God will judge more severe? I think our doctors are going to be judged more severe than even these guys right here. Amman was on the east side of Jordan River, modern-day Jordan. Amman are the descendants of Lot by his daughter, Genesis 19.38. Remember, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, and they went to that cave, and they took wine, and they thought all men were dead, and, you know, there was only their dad. So, you know, we don't want to, you know, leave the world unpopulated. Or let's get dad drunk and just hop in bed with him. And uh, one of the descendants were now the Ammonites. The other one's going to be the Moabites. Amazing. Incest. It says they ripped open these women that they might enlarge their territory. Wow. A little more land. But isn't that what wars are all about most of the time? Not all the time. You need to expand your borders. Right? Now sometimes wars are justified in that one nation attacks another unprovoked or because they want to expand their borders so a nation has to defend itself. You know, and people say, well, we got to just be in peace and that's what the whole UN and the whole philosophy of today, you know, we're going to create peace, bring peace. Listen, as long as Jesus Christ is not back, there will never be peace on this earth. Study the history of how many years of peace we've had to every year of war. The little time we're at peace, we're planning for the next war. We are bad news. Verse 14 and 15, the description of God's judgment is given. The verdict is declared by fire again on Riba. It's capital of Oman, the modern-day capital of today, modern-day Jordan. Joab defeated Rabbah, if you remember, in Second Samuel twelve twenty six, and told David, you come or I'm going to claim it for myself. It was uh, punished by many. Ptolemy, Philadelphus of Egypt, and uh, it became one of the Greek cities of the Decapolis. The king would go into captivity, verse 15, and Syria fulfilled this after 722 B.C. And Nebuchadnezzar also in 582 to 581 B.C. Next, we have in chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, the judgment of Moab. It says, Thus saith the Lord, For three transgressions of Moab, and for four, I will not turn its punishment, turn away its punishment, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. But I will send a fire upon Moab, it shall devour the palaces of Kiriath. Moab shall die with tumult with shoutings and trumpet sounds. And I will cut off the judge 
from its midst and slay all its princes with him, saith the Lord. The repeated structure again is stated like all the others. The oath, the prophetic formula, the verdict, so on and so forth. The Moabites were the descendants of Lot. Again, Genesis 19.38. Through his other daughter. They were east of the Dead Sea between Ammon to the north and Edom to the south. They refused permission um, on the king's highway of Moses, and they hired Balaam, if you remember, to uh, uh, curse Israel. And the young virgins seduced the Israelites in their sexual worship practices. You find that in Judges 11, 17, Numbers 22, and Numbers 25, 1 through 3. And so here again you have, um, though there's a descendancy and connection with Ammon and Moab, they are completely two different um, moral standards of lifestyle from Israel. Not at the moment that we're talking about the northern part of Israel as they have gone into idolatry, but if you ever go to Israel with us, when you're in Israel in the Jewish section, it is civil, it is clean, it is orderly. You move into the Arab or the Muslim section, it's night and day. Chaos. Dirty. As different locations have been turned over to them. Hebron. Bethlehem. Jericho. I visited these places when they were under Jewish control. There were great places to visit. Clean. Friendly. Great archaeological sites. Now they're in the hands of the Muslims. Dangerous. Dirty. Hostile. It's just that simple. Night and day. So I don't understand the as I said this morning, the slobbering love affair with Islam by Americans, especially our leaders. Who of you could go to Saudi Arabia or Iraq or Afghanistan on vacation and lay on the beach with a bathing suit? You'd be killed right on the spot. Or go to a restaurant eating and bow your head and pray in the name of Jesus. Your head would come off. Or allow your wife or your daughter to wear a spring dress. I don't understand our nation. I don't understand our educational system. Complete deceptive indoctrination. They treat her like a pussycat. It's a lion. It always has been. It always will be. Nothing will ever change. And so, the reason for their judgment was that they had burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. Now, we don't have any record of this, but the fact that it's mentioned, it did happen in one of those events. But this was to desecrate the body, to bring insult in a type of curse. That's what it's for. You disinter a body and you scatter the bones, or you hack it up again, or you burn it, or you expose it to just desecrate it as an insult. That's what's implied here in the context. Don't let anybody use scriptures like this to say that God condemns cremation. It's not what it's talking about. It's completely out of context. How many Christians were burned alive at the stake? Are they not going to be raised? 
Is God up in heaven saying, oops, I didn't know they were going to burn some of them. The fire will do in 30 minutes what the earth will do in 30 years. God is not going to have any more difficulty raising your body from a grave or the ocean or from cremation. Or if you crash in a plane and you're splattered into the mountain (laughs) and then the wolves and the bears come and have a feast on you. Is God going to have a problem gathering it from the animals or from where they deposited you? There's nothing difficult with God. And so when people use scripture, make sure that you um, examine the context all the time. Very, very important. Verse 2 through 3, the description of God's judgment. Again, fire again is used for the judgment of Moab, the places of Kiriath. Kiriath is cities. Interesting because Judas Iscariot, he was probably from the cities, his origin. Now, the sure of it coming to pass, again stated, saith the Lord in verse 3. Till Gath, Pileser third again in 374 B.C. subjugated them. Later, Sennacherib of Assyria quenched the rebellion. Moab paid tribute to Babylon in 598 B.C. And the burden of Moab is, is proclaimed by Isaiah in Isaiah 15. And Ruth was a Moabitess who was prohibited to enter the sanctuary of God till the 10th generation, but so were the Moabites in Deuteronomy 23.3. And God declared it, and God knew the fulfillment of it, and he brought Ruth in, who was a great-grandmother of David. <laughs> She's in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, chapter 2, verse 4 through 5, you have the judgment of Judah. Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four I will not turn away its punishment because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. Their lies lead them astray, lies which their fathers followed. But I will end, I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. Again, not very long, two verses. The divine knows the reason is given to us. They despise the law of the Lord. They did not keep it. Their lies led them astray. And so it's always important that you and I examine everything by the word of God. This is the plumb line. And that when people teach something, or when I hear something, or people entice me with something, that I run it by the word of God. The descriptive judgment again um, in verse 5, sending fire like the others, devouring the palaces of Jerusalem. God is just. God is holy. God cannot make mistakes. His judgments are perfect and altogether righteous. When we come to verse 6 of chapter 2, all the way down to 16 is the judgment of Israel that we taught this morning in death. I'm not going to belabor it in death. But once again, this is the climax of the judgment of the nations. Uh, I'll go from two to four verses each, but here now from verse 6 down to 16, 11 verses. And so verse 6 through 8, you have a divine proclamation of judgment. He says, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. Amazing. Here the um, divine oath is given. They sell the righteous for silver, those who owed creditors, and they would just deny them justice and, and sell them to be uh, uh, servants, uh, slaves uh, for silver and trying to enrich themselves, the poor for a, a pair of shoes, sandals. They would have no compassion, no pity, as we said this morning. They would trample 
the poor. As it says there in um, verse 7, they pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor, and pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. The pant after the dust of the earth on their head is the desire to not leave them with anything, oppressing them socially, selling them for debt. And in, in, in spite of their afflicted and suffering state, that's not sufficient for those who are evil against the godly to take even the dust, the comfort they have. And so, they pervert the way of the humble. They corrupt them. The man and his father go into the same girl. The article, the, the definite article is there in the Hebrew and it speaks about a specific girl. We don't know exactly which one, but regarding the perversion of the idolatrous forms in the north, Without that, it could be um, a, a woman of, of who is a servant in the home who is raped or accosted or even a family member, which would be incest. And if you look at Leviticus, the whole section of sexuality that was prohibited, sex against mother, father, uncle, and brother, sister, all those things against men with men, women with women, Animal bestiality. All of that. Now why did God put all those? Because that's what people tend to do. If people were not prone to such perversion, God would not put that and prohibit that. The very prohibition shows us how corrupt and perverse we are as human beings. All those things go on in our society right now. I don't want to shock you. It's amazing to me. And it's like, how far does this world have to go before God lowers the boom as we look around? They lie down, verse 8, by every altar, on clothes taken in pledge, a drink and drink the wine that condemns in the house of their God. Exodus speaks about the uh, 22, 25 to 26, about the pledge that would be taken if a person uh, borrowed some money or something, and they would give you his coat for security, and then when the sun came down before it did, you would give them back their coat so they can sleep warm that night. Then they would come back the next day, give it to you, and they'd go back to work or whatever they did. And such was the case. These guys just kept it. They didn't honor. There was no pity, no compassion, no nothing. And here they're in the altars, many altars, plural, all over the land, as we've seen with Hosea and Joel. And um, they, um, they're celebrating and drinking wine uh, of the condemned. And they have no qualms about it, and it could be a reference of they that that father and son uh, actually are having this sexual encounter with the same woman at the altar. We know that, that uh, Lave of uh, San Francisco Church of Satan in the 60s and 70s and that, many horrific things like that took place, murders and everything. You have a lot of cults that are... Um, all around our cities that worship Satan, that sacrifice people. And yet, as God looks down, it must just be so incredibly horrible to him, a holy God. We're shocked beyond imagination, but we're not holy. A whole different thing. Verse 9 says, Yet, it was I who destroyed the Amorites before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was as strong as an oak. Yet I destroyed his fruit above and his root beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorites. So God was not intimidated in verse 9. 
by the stature of the Amorites, the Anakins and that. He destroyed them. He gave the land over to Israel, left them in the land. The abomination of the Amorites were not fully come, not fulfilled. So God told Abraham he couldn't give him the land in Genesis 15, 16, I believe. And uh, so while he was building the nation for 430 years, God gave the land that time to repent. So God communicated himself to them in some way, which we don't know. And God said, here's the line. I'll wait to see if you repent. You remember that Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, he offered sacrifice to God. Okay? So God didn't just deal with the Jews. He dealt with Jethro before Moses. Okay? Otherwise, God wouldn't have accepted that sacrifice. So God has made himself known, Romans chapter 1, by conscience, by history, by special revelation. No one's innocent. And so, he brought them out of Egypt, delivered them, patient for 40 years, providing for them the wilderness, limiting the Lord, rebelling. And then he gave them the land. He gave it to them. They didn't deserve it. They didn't work for it. He said, when you go into the land, you see those cisterns, you see those vineyards, you see those cities. I gave them to you. didn't work for it. As you look to your life and I to my life, everything I have is because of God. His goodness to give me health, to give me able to think completely. So he says, I raised up some of your sons and prophets. Here's the charge. And some of your young men as Nazarites. Is it not so, O you children of Israel, says the Lord? Are you calling me a liar? Are you going to deny it? The prophets were sent with God's message. We have Amos before us. In chapter 7, they told him, hey, get away from here. Don't prophesy here. He says, I wasn't the son of a prophet. I was a sheep breeder and I was a fruit picker. Don't tell me. Talk to God about it. He's the one that sent me. The Nazarites, the root word means to separate. Couldn't touch wine, grapes, certain fruits. Not cut their hair. It was a voluntary uh, devotion for a set time. Unless God called them as a perpetual Nazarite for life. Samson, John the Baptist. And if they touched a dead body, they would have to do sacrifice and purify themselves. And all that time was lost. And re-engage again. Numbers chapter 6 gives you all the details about that. And yet, but you gave the Nazarites wine to drink, corrupted them forcibly. And commanded the prophets saying, do not prophesy again. Chapter 7, we see it evident regarding Amos here. Therefore, Flight shall perish from the swift. So here's the consequences of that judgment. I'm sorry, verse 13. Down to 16. You have here God's destruction. God's judgment that comes upon them. He says here, Behold, I am weighed down by you. As a cart full of sheaves is weighed down. In other words, God gives that time. God is patient. God is long-suffering. He's looking for repentance. He's looking for us humbling ourselves and calling upon Him. And God is more than willing to forgive. In fact, Isaiah tells us that it's God's strange way to deal in judgment. He would much rather. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. I wanted to gather you as a hand, but you were not willing. All right. Now I leave unto you desolate. You shall not see me henceforth till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Wow. Isaiah 5, the vineyard. What else could I have done? I hedged you. I watered you. I fertilized you. Expect the good grapes. Whoa. Wild grapes. Don't tell me there's no free will. 
of the risen, then God made a mistake on his decrees. <laughs> and he's responsible for all the evil. Which way you want it? Can't have it both ways. God's weighed down. It means to totter. They're going to be crushed. Judgment is coming. Therefore, flight shall perish from the swift. The fastest will not escape. The strong shall not strengthen his power. Nobody will be flexing their muscle. Nor shall the mighty deliver himself. It'll be like a little girl. He shall not stand who handles the bow. Accurate, precise, fierce, not in that day. The swift of foot shall not escape. He'll cower. Nor shall he who rides the horse deliver himself. He will be surrounded, overwhelmed. The most courageous man of might shall flee naked in that day, saith the Lord. That day when they had crossed that line, that day when God gave them up, that day when God said, I warned you long enough. God always warns the believer, ladies and gentlemen, never the non-believer. He's seeking the lost to save them, to regenerate them, to open their eyes, to transform them. The warning is always to the believer. Every warning in the New Testament is to the believers. Go home this week, and I want you to read the book of Hebrews in one sitting. Sit down, get a cup of coffee, a Coke, or whatever you want. Get off where no one's going to bother you. Take your, uh, your phone and smash it or leave it behind. And sit down and read the book of Hebrews from chapter 1, verse 1, to the end of chapter 13. And it is the strongest warning to the Christian not to depart from God. Not the non-believer. Not the non-believer. Don't believe anybody that tells you the book of Hebrews was to the group of priests and it's not applicable to the Christian. Just look at them and if you have glasses, go like this and then walk away. Doesn't even deserve a response. It's a greater rebuke. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. He's loving. He's patient. He is so compassionate. He is so merciful. He is so able to forgive the vilest of sins. Paul says some of you were fornicators, adulterers, thieves, homosexuals. Sodomites. There's a difference between a homosexual and a sodomite. Sodomite is not a homosexual. He just is a participant in that type of sexual activity. But he's not homosexual. And the Bible makes a very clear distinction between them. And then Paul says, Now you are cleansed. Now you are washed in Jesus Christ. So God does not hate homosexuals any more than he hates fornicators or adulterers. God is seeking all sinners to call on his name to repent and to be born again so he can transform your heart and your life for the glory of God. To be a light and salt to this crazy world that we are living in. What an incredible offer he gives to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he has entrusted you with that message and myself. Father, thank you for your grace and your goodness. Deal with our hearts. And we so thank you for just your word, your promises, and the hope we have in you. And so, Lord, I pray for every person here tonight that your hand be upon them. You would watch over them. That, Father, as we've gone through these verses and these two chapters, you would just minister to our hearts as we meditate upon them. And that you would just be glorified in our lives. Help us to please you more. Help us to put on your armor, to walk in the Spirit. To use the spiritual weapons you've given to us, Lord, that we might be victorious and end up standing. 
to bring glory to you. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. If you believe Jesus is God who became man, became literal sin for you, and hung on the cross, and the wrath of the Father fell upon him for you, then you can be saved as you call upon him. Your prayer has to be to him. No one can make it for you. So if you're here and you want to repent of your sins, this is your prayer to the Lord, and he's going to save you right where you sit right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you. As my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.